This podcast contains swear words and two brothers discussing how to make their behavior fit their beliefs. It seems polite to warn you. You and I will disagree. I'm not you. good for you is not good for me I'm talking philosophically what's good for you and me I'm talking philosophically welcome to philosophically sound where we explore the music people like and learn to love the music and people we explore. I'm Tony. I'm a musician, a teacher, and an aspiring philosopher. And I'm Gus. I'm Tony's brother, a professional learning and development guy, and an aspiring philosopher, but not as much as Tony is. <laughs> I, when I was young, I used to tell people I wanted to be a professional guy. Um, that's not true, but it sounds cool. Yeah, I just want to be a guy who gets paid to do stuff, which I think I've achieved. (laughs) Mission accomplished. (laughs) Today we're exploring Miley Cyrus and Lana Del Rey, authenticity and criticism. Hmm. But first, before we dig into this rich, rich category of topics, we want to talk about the exercise that we brought up last time, which was we were talking about music festivals, Warped Tour specifically, and the listening mindset when you decide to go to a festival and you're there for maybe eight hours or something, you're there for a whole day, you're, you're drinking something fun, you're listening to music and you're walking, you're there to see specific artists, sure, but you're also open to being wowed by new artists you might never have heard of before. And it's such a cool thing. Gus, my favorite quote of all time, like, I don't normally spend eight hours a day drinking and listening to music, but maybe I should. Maybe I should. And so we made, you can find this, I'll have this all linked from this episode and some other episodes probably. The There's a Philosophically Sound playlist, it's called Backyard Music Festival. So la, it was just last Saturday, less than a week ago, I took my Bluetooth speaker out to the backyard. I had made about a two-hour playlist. One of the ways um, you could do this yourself, I would love to hear your playlists that you come up with, listeners. Start with something you love, collection of songs you love. Go to some songs that you just know nothing about, but maybe come recommended to you. Go to some songs that you think you don't like, whether you don't know those songs or you have listened to them before, just things you think you won't like. And then end with more songs that you love. And dedicate yourself to really listening for those two hours. About my experience Saturday, I definitely I definitely listened closely for the two hours, but I was open to uh, taking care of my two-year-old at the same time. So sometimes I took the... We're potty training right now. We're learning to use the potty. Nice. He's doing pretty good. He's... He's aware of the fact that, like, oh, yeah, I, I pee and I get wet, so I'm, I'm learning. Mm. Um, and so I'd bring the speaker into the bathroom sometimes, and we'd party in there for a little bit, um, which is cool. Just like a music festival, you go to the porta potty and, like, you're not losing the music. It's loud. True. You can hear, you it, can in hear it in there. So yeah. it, was, it was nice. 
eating snacks and stuff, you know, going into the kitchen, going back to the yard. And I had some friends show up at the house for like the last 30 minutes of the playlist, which was really awesome too. It's like, like oh, guys, party, can't party change started. the music. This is part of the show. That's right. That's right. Can't, can't, uh, can't abandon now. And you listened to the same playlist, right, Gus? I did. So I did two iterations of this. I listened to yours, and then I also made one of my own. Oh, good. And it, and because I don't think I did it right. Like, I listened to the music, but I was super busy the day I was trying to do it. So like you, I was, like, mm. doing all sorts of chores and things, and it just it felt like it got in the way. But I can weigh in on... I'm curious, I'm curious about, well, I have some guesses, but I'm curious about what's familiar to you, what you thought you wouldn't like, or what's like recommended and what you thought you wouldn't like. I mean, I think you put it in that order, but, uh, but, uh, I would love to weigh in on that, but I'll let you keep Yeah. Going. Okay. So we'll talk about the one we both listened to first. I would love to hear about what you created. Yes. I, have I started with a, uh, an, an old, they're not together anymore, but an old local Colorado band called Bop Schism. Yes. Um, <laughs> Bob Schism was really near and dear to our hearts. I think we we both listened to them for the first time at the Wheat Ridge Carnation Festival, yeah. the, the great worldwide known Wheat Ridge Carnation Festival. And August eleventh, see you there. Yeah, fantastic, cool synthesis of um of punk and funk a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. sorry, I just put a big puh into the microphone a there, but that's not a big deal. Punk and funk. Thank you for that. Um. And uh, headed by, at that time, Andy Rock, who was the guitarist in the Flowbots and like, you know, kind of incredible fame there. But then this side project that not as many people know about. Very, very fun to listen and, to. And he lives next to our parents now, which is in turn <laughs> Studio Panda. He's right there. Get him for right an there. interview. He's like right next to us. Right. I'll, I'll get him in here sometime. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, he would yeah. like it. And so I love, I put those songs on. I know almost all the words. I know them. I'm singing along. I'm dancing. It's just a great way to start at like 1030 on a Saturday. I'm just, I'm part, I'm dancing with Rowan, spinning him around. It was great. Yeah. Then I went into some music that was suggested to me by a cousin-in-law, the uh, Funky Freeform Freaks. We had been talking about free jazz, and he suggested this band. They're not so much free jazz in the style of Ornette Coleman, if you're um, into that sort of thing and familiar with that. But they are... I don't know a lot about them, actually. I just It was like a trio, it sounded like, of bass, guitars, drums. They were groovy. And they really, really groovy, and also a little, little weird. Not uh, yeah. funky in terms of not always using um, regular uh, meters, regular like 4-4 time. Sometimes like really, really moving away from a key center, too. Like where, where we talk about music with numbers, we have a one that's like the most gravitationally strong uh, note. There would be some moments there where they'd be like, ah, we're just like moving away from all that and then getting back to the gravitational force of a key. And I, I really dig stuff like that. So this is a good recommendation. I was very, very happy to be listening closely to that stuff and yeah. grooving along with them. Oh, uh, sort of a side note. At the moment I was listening to their music, I was flipping through a book of Norman Rockwell paintings. Uh, Lana Del Rey has an album called Norman Fucking Rockwell. And uh, I was like, I didn't know who Norman Rockwell was. And now I do. I've looked through a lot of his paintings from the Saturday Evening Post. It was cool. Two birds, one stone. Um, Don't throw stones at birds. No. Then I went to, I was thinking a lot about what don't I like. And in a great irony... I am a professional choral musician. I actually have a choir, had a choir gig last night. I'll do a performance tomorrow night. But one of the kinds of music that I have a hard time finding space in my life to listen to and have it be enjoyable is choral music. 
Um, I, I yeah. sing it, and I quite like singing it. And I sort of suspect that I, I just like singing it better than I like listening to it. Um, I do think that choral music is particularly hard to do really, really well. Um, choral music has this feature of like where the text, the words are notes are usually held for such a long time that it can be sort of hard to make sense of what the words are because a single sentence might actually last for like 45 seconds in this setting of music. I noticed that on these recordings. Right. And so, so if you're, I am very word focused. Um, Here I am talking to you on a podcast, right? I, I love words. I love thinking about what words mean. And and even though I also love instrumental music, it's a funky thing that when it comes, you could think of choral music like instrumental music, perhaps. Um, but so specifically, I put on a composer called Eric Whitaker. Um, I've sung a lot of his works throughout the years. And, and I generally like Eric. I've uh, met Eric Whitaker in person. He did like a lot of workshops with choirs I've sung with. And, hmm, and he nice. seems like a really, he's a neat guy and a cool thinker. But a lot of times his music just doesn't resonate emotionally with me and sometimes this is actually a comparative thing I, people around me are like oh my gosh they're just like they're having orgasms and it's amazing and I'm like yeah it seems fine to me you know I'm not on the same level yeah, and sometimes yeah. that almost that differentiation in us like it's it's interesting like for me wasn't doing as much and I think at that time I was having a hard time digging into the joy that these other people were feeling you know so, yeah that said, all that said, like putting this in the middle of like uh, after the freeform freaks and some other like very poppy stuff, not a great placement for this choral music in order to like it. It was like really different yeah. from everything else in the playlist. Yeah, so I, I felt that I wasn't, too. <laughs> wasn't doing the music any favors in that way. So I, I might, I think liking choral music will probably be the, liking listening to it will be the subject of future experiments for me. <laughs> then we got into Cardi Ray Jepsen of Call Me Maybe fan uh, fame. And I just took four songs that I liked the title of that I'd never heard before off of her latest album. And I listened to the first two and the first two weren't totally grabbing me. They were sort of, in fact, much like the choral music, I found myself sort of disconnecting from the words. And, uh, and then even the groove too didn't feel after, again, context is maybe everything here. It's like where the freeform freaks had this like flexible sort of um, grungy groove. Carly Rae Jepsen's pop is like very tight and precise and, and not so freeform, right? Yeah. But then we get to, she's got her song, Go Find Yourself or whatever. And those lyrics stuck out to me and I just liked them. I found them sort Phenomenal of and charming. Song. Yeah. I was knocked off my feet. I was like, wait, wait, wait. This is Carly Rae Jemsen? I had to double check. I was like, no way. This is the same person who put out that earworm. It is. That's so cool. So See, cool. And, and, and isn't that indicative of what our minds do to artists, right? We start thinking of them as like, oh, well, there's this big song that they do. And so why would I think of them any other way? But of course, these are like complex human beings just like us. So why wouldn't they do a lot of different things? Yeah. Well, and you know, once you put something out there, sometimes it's a little out of your control how popular or unpopular it gets, right? Exactly. You, you put out this piece of art, you sang the song and, and the world runs with it. And then now you're that person and you're like, whoa, okay. Um, and I'm sure artists, actors, you talk about getting typecast. Uh, you know, Matthew McConaughey has a great story in his book, Green Lights, of always being the, the typecast romantic comedy mm. guy. And he, he just quits doing movies for a while to try and break that spell. It's a good story. Um, but, but yes, it is interesting how uh, that first impression or whatever you, you 
get gets stuck in your mind. And I imagine many artists struggle with the, how do I reinvent myself? If I want to, do I even want to? Right, right. That last Carly Rae Jepsen song too featured Rufus Wainwright singing harmonies in a couple of verses, yeah, and I nice love Rufus Wainwright. I just I follow some of his other music and really like his voice. And there specifically too, the their two voices were treated as like equal in the audio engineering of that. You know, it's like you could hear both voices like in the harmony working together, which is a big preference of mine, um, as opposed to some of her other pop music where the harmonies were there, but sort of far away, letting the lead vocal be in the front. And um, I dig how some people like that because it's all like, let's focus on the lead thing I can sing to. I'm a big fan of hearing those equal harmonies to each other. Yeah. Then I was sort of cramming for this episode. I'm like, let me put some Miley and some Lana at the end. Because I also... um, even before this episode, I've always liked both Miley Cyrus and Lana Del Rey I've always liked as well, but I've been less familiar with her music mm-hmm. up until the past couple of weeks. And that was fun. That was really, really fun. Uh, Summertime Sadness was on there. I, I turned to my partner while we were listening to that. I'm like, this song strikes me as pretty brilliant because like, it's so, it's so groovy. It's so, there's like a halftime feel, like, but then, so the it's like the same underlying tempo, same underlying beats, but then the rhythm gets twice as busy to make it feel more energetic and and um but the but then the lyric is just summertime sadness. And and of course what what middle school or high school or I don't know, maybe even today still doesn't have that that sort of sense of sorrow that the summer is coming to an end and the perceived freedom is going away. But at the same time the song feels so groovy and peppy, but it's like this morose I just thought it was such a great juxtaposition of so many weird things yeah you know it's interesting I don't I don't know if it's the first time I've heard the original version but I've more often heard the techno party remix of Summertime Sadness which is maybe twice as fast way more (laughs) upbeat and uh, you know groovy so uh, it was interesting hearing like like it's so funny there's so much sampling and, and so many remixes in the world today that sometimes if you don't stop to think or dig you don't realize what the original song is I thought it the techno one was the original so right right anyway and then we closed out with Miley and I I hope I hope you'll go listen to my backyard playlist if you want listen to the end I, th- I thought it was a fun idea to think okay what if we have Miley Cyrus for a little while then imagine like her set is over and she comes out for an encore but Weird Al Yankovic <laughs> is there too and they do party at the CIA um, I just thought that was fun, but then I, I appreciated put, that. Then we put Wrecking Ball after that to really close with. Gotcha. So you even it. put the encore in there. That's brilliant. I was wondering about that. <laughs> I was like, why didn't he just put Party or Party in the USA? Uh, but then, yeah, that's brilliant uh, um, thought. <laughs> yeah, I thought it had to be like you know, Miley, one more song, one more song. I love that. Um, I had a lot of fun headbanging to Wrecking Ball. It's just a great. It's song. on the album. It's on the album called Bangers. It's a banger. It's, it's incredible. A, it is. Yeah, it really is. You want to say anything about the other playlist you created? Sure, I'll I'll be brief. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I enjoyed. You know, I enjoyed your playlist, and the I liked the choral music more than I thought I would. Ooh. As you as you said, it was in a very like weird spot after all that groovy funky music. But I I sort of enjoyed it, and I was like, yeah, I never listened to this. But it it was sort of like going back to one of those earlier episodes we did about um, that type of music with a certain activity. It's like that's great music when you're sitting there contemplating the universe or God. 
which is probably why it's amazing in a church setting with that resonance and like makes you, you know, it evokes emotion. But when you're trying to party, terrible, terrible <laughs> song. So I think the activity, uh, you know, may play a role in, in liking that. Um, I have felt like that's one of our most valuable insights so far is that like, what are you doing as you listen to music? That might be so critical for your enjoyment or, or lack of enjoyment. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think there's more uh, to be discovered there. Um, but so my, I, you know, I, the, I did it in the same order. Something I know I like, something that was recommended, and something I don't like. And so the, the band I like, Ballyhoo, they're one of my favorite new bands. They're out of uh, Maryland, and they're just like this great ska, kind of kind of like, yeah, ska, funk, reggae-type punk rock band, and I just love them. Um, and I was sitting outside... Uh, drinking a beer uh, in my in my back patio, working on stuff for the podcast, actually. Um, Hell yeah! And so I had a great time with them. Can't hate Ballyhoo. They're, and I discovered they're coming in in July, so I'm like, oh, let's go buy tickets. So that was a nice yeah. uh, uh, surprise. The next band is one I've never heard of, but Haley recommended called Down with Webster, and they apparently she found them in in high school, maybe like '09 or 2012, like somewhere around there. And um, they're kind of like they're kind of like a three hundred three white boy punk rap type band, like a lot about partying, which is funny because uh, my my wife wasn't a huge partier in high school, so it's funny that like she really liked that music. Um, but uh, it seeped its way into her consciousness. It wasn't yeah. necessarily my favorite, but I thoroughly enjoyed it because she was singing along, and you could tell it was like really nostalgic for her. And so nice. I was like, yeah, this is awesome. Um, so, so that, that's maybe an insight too, when you can, uh, tell that your, your friends are really enjoying something that makes you happy, right? If you take joy. Yeah. In I think that's one of the most practical applications in your daily life of the implied for me is like, if you're thinking of what, uh, if, if other people like it for them and that liking is as valid and valuable as your liking of something different, then you can try to take as much joy out of their liking of it as you get out of the things you like, right? The third one that I that I don't like, I've never liked this band, is the Smashing Pumpkins. And so I was like, let's give them a shot. So I started listening to like one of their new songs from their newest album. It's fucking terrible for me. It's whiny, it's nasally. Never really liked the singer's voice. All right, vocal tone. Then I was listening to 1979, which is one of their kind of like all-time hits fucking terrible i was like oh, i still hate this and then i was like okay what am i missing i'm sitting here listening to the music i've never liked the music let me try something different so i i was like maybe because like when you're at the show you see different stuff so i was like let me watch the music video and you know it had all this sort of like teen angst and this kind of 90s nostalgia and they're like teeping stuff and trying to get drinks and just doing all this like sort of nihilistic like teen stuff and and you know then like that style of music kind of made more sense to me or maybe i was just distracted because i had a visual story to follow i don't know but i but i did enjoy that a little bit better with the visuals so so that would be my my recommendation or takeaway or or theory to follow rabbit hole to go down is that perhaps a music video or, or visuals can help you enjoy music that you haven't previously liked I think that that's a good, we're going to explore that topic right away, actually, because I tend to be, I'm very, very just music auditory focused. When people recommend music to me, 
I don't go to YouTube. Same. I, I, I either go buy the songs or I look them up on Spotify. And, um, but a lot of people are the opposite. They go to YouTube to find it, thereby experiencing both the visuals and the music at the same time for the first time. And I think especially with Miley Cyrus and Lana Del Rey, the videos and what's vis- you know what's visually shown in them is sometimes, I think, a bigger source of critique for them by outsiders than even the songs, the lyrics themselves, which I, is I, interesting to me. Yeah, I could, I could totally see that. Why this topic? Why are we talking about Molly and Lana? Um, first of all, I want to say I am. I'm going to take a little pride in what we've done so far and continue to do with this season. We've talked about Simon and Garfunkel. We've talked about Dead Sarah, who I bet many of you have probably not heard of before. Now we're talking about Molly and Lana. Next month, we're going to talk about the BET Awards, which are coming up this weekend. We'll have some time to process and talk about that. We are trying in our quest to like as many things as possible to get as diverse as possible in the things that we listen to, which of course is not a thing we'll really be able to fully cover in the course of 11 episodes this year, once, once a month, but, uh, beyond we will, we will keep reaching as, as far as we can extend our, extend our perception, you know? So in the Atlantic, um, I have the, my mother-in-law gave me a subscription to the Atlantic magazine last year, which is cool. We, We'll link to this article that I read in there. And if you have a subscription, you can read it too. But if you don't, you know, ask a friend. (laughs) And the article is called In Their Feelings by James Parker. The subtitle, The Indelible, Indomitable Voices of Miley Cyrus and Lana Del Rey. And this is in the section of the magazine called Culture and Critics. This is essentially a piece of music criticism. And criticism in general is sometimes, I think, a perhaps a misunderstood concept, perhaps a perhaps a um, sort of anxiety inducing concept like, oh, I don't want people to critique me. I don't want people to tell me everything that's wrong with what I'm doing. But as I was thinking about this and approaching this episode, I was also thinking about how for my own work, when I'm doing um, when I'm singing in choirs, when I'm, I was just creating music for somebody else's podcast recently and I sent them a song and then they sent me back some critique. They're like, I think that's a little too bubbly for us. Or they're like this way, maybe that's a little too slow. Uh, can it sound more like this example? Right. And, and that is an example of critique, right? Now I would say that's example of, of good, useful critique right there. There may be critique that is not of use to you. Like Gus, your hair sucks, right? Is that, <laughs> in you. fact, Fuck you, brother. It might even be arguable. Is that critique at all? Does that count as critique for... Mm. So here's a Merriam-Webster definition. Criticize. To consider the merits and demerits of and judge accordingly. And I underlined and bolded the word consider. Because I think if you really consider both the merits and the demerits of something before making your judgment, then you're doing a thorough, perhaps useful critique. But if you, you know, less thoroughly consider or even experience the thing, imagine listening to 15 seconds of a song and you decide this song sucks. Now, there are different judgments you could make, I think. Like if you want to say, uh, this song is not for me and I'm, I'm out of here. I don't have time to listen to this after the 15 seconds. That's fine. But if you then went on to like post about that and share it with other people, like share your hot take, your critique, what are you really doing? You're just sort of farting, you know, which, you know, you can fart on the internet if you want. A lot of people do that. So 
that farting, this, this comes, I'm reading a book right now, an ancient Chinese, a piece of Chinese literature where one of the translations is like, now you're just farting out of your mouth is what they say to each other when they're like dicking around. And I, I really, so I, that's entering my lexicon now, <laughs> a translation of a, of like a thousand year old Chinese phrase. You, you know what? I, I have some book about quotes that my mother-in-law gave me. And there's a quote in there that said, if you want a new idea, read an old book. And I like that new idea, farting yes. out of your mouth. <laughs> I like that too. So about music criticism specifically now, one of the things I started thinking in the conception and, and planning of this show is that so much writing about music is, of course, not fully descriptive of what the music is, right? How can it be? Um, the music is expressed in not writing, right? Um that's why we make an effort. I make an effort to talk about what the chords are, to play piano for you, to sing things for you, to kind of put it in context. I like thinking about what I call, right, the realities of the music. What are the frequencies, the things that are sort of undeniable, right? We could argue back and forth whether or not it's a soaring melody, but we can't necessarily argue that like the melody starts on scale degree five and ascends to scale degree two up above the tonic. Right? Yeah. It's like we can there are ways we can sort of measure stuff and talk about it so-called objectively. Right. Yeah. So a lot of times music criticism reading about it hasn't done a lot for me. But I read this piece by James Parker in their feelings. And I was so I was so attracted to the words he was using. He was just like, and I think this is what a really good writer about music is probably setting out to do is to like find the combinations of words and language that will sort of excite my imagination about what these songs might sound like. Right. So I'm going to yeah. give you some examples and then we'll, we'll do more examples on this later, but I think a few to get us started before we analyze. Good. Here's how Parker introduces Miley Cyrus in his article. And I'm going to read you one sentence, but it's a long sentence. <laughs> Quote, Cyrus, daughter of the country singer Billy Ray Cyrus, was a Disney kid, the star of Hannah Montana, a highly processed pop prodigy who moved from Tennessee to L.A., see Party in the USA, broke out and became a bong-brandishing hip-hop appropriator, twerk transgressor, sometime Flaming Lips collaborator, and pop, country, glam rock, anarchic aberration obsessed with freedom and nudity and molly and getting some, chafing and rattling in her corporate cage, her magnificent voice growing steadily slash unsteadily deeper and rougher and omnivorous, from a gurgling mezzo-soprano to an anthemic libertine roar, to something like Metallica's James Hetfield, belching flames of pure estrogen, all the while achieving higher and higher levels of pop visibility until finally, in January, she smashed Spotify's all-time weekly song streaming record with her post-breakup empowerment frolic, Flowers. So there's wow. like just a but it's a massive run-on sentence, and it's just wonderful too. I love that in kind of in the in this. One little paragraph, we could call it. He's talking about some of the things that she's drawn flack for from from critics, I suppose, right? Like whether those critics are people posting on Twitter or their own Facebook pages or writing lengthy pieces for publications. Um, the bong thing was like when I, I looked at, 
I looked into this a little and watched her talk about it in her opening monologue on SNL. And like, this is 2012 or 2013, I think. And, um, she sings this great song where even at the, she's 18 at this point. And I was sort of struck by her, her maturity, actually her poise to say like, she sings about some other scandals, uh, some people of, you know, guilty of committing rape, some other shit. And she's like, isn't that worse than smoking a bong? And that's, they wrote that lyric into the song. And I'm like, that seems pretty brilliant. Like she was really unfazed, I feel like, by that sort of critique. Like, yeah. And I heard her um, frame this in an interview that I read today that uh, she said, I'm not too worried about losing younger fans who like loved me because of Hannah Montana. I, she's like, I sort of viewed Hannah Montana in the way most of us have to do some kind of job that we're not crazy about or really love in order to get where we want to be. And Hannah Montana was kind of that for me. And I love that perspective because obviously for, for a lot of people, they would think like, oh, being a Disney star is obviously like the best job in the world, right? But clearly from a much even younger age, I would guess, Miley hasn't been like some pure, you know, like pure caricature of a, of a girl or woman, right? It's like mm-hmm. she's had her own ideas about what is fun for her, right? And of yeah. course, there's a society around us that has its own judgments about what young people should be able to do. And um, and there's a lot of complexity that we're going to, that we'll try to parse out, parse out as, as well as we can. I have some perspective to offer as a new father for some of these things later. Nice. Then we'll introduce Lana Del Rey too. This is what Parker in his article says. Del Rey. Born Elizabeth Grant in New York, weathered a now incomprehensible controversy about authenticity, a word that, to paraphrase Nabokov, should only ever be in quotes. Upon the 2011 release of her swooning, doomy single, Video Games, It's you, it's you, it's all for you, everything I do. Romanticism that smelled like nihilism, utterly convincing. We'll get into that later, too. Who could have doubted her? Who could have doubted Lana Del Rey? But they did. They arraigned her as the fabrication of male music biz wizards, a fake, a thing of vapors, only to watch her billow unstoppably outward, enveloping her helpless audience in a woozy fantasia of poetry, scandal, profanity, emotional purgation, street talk, and yellow-toothed pianos in decaying Hollywood mansions, dark blue Americana, a Dorsian West Coast trip, tambourine-like flickerings of electricity on the horizon. Tambourine-like flickerings of electricity on the horizon, right? It's like, and this does, I think that describes a lot of her music so well. It's like, just last night, actually, I was driving home in really, really intense rain and hail. But then I get off the highway coming back to my house, and all of a sudden, the sky isn't clear, but there's no more rain. And there's just these dark, billowing clouds on the horizon, and there's flashes of lightning sort of that look like they're they're just obscured. They're far away from me, right? I love thinking of that as like the energy of Lana Del Rey's music. So all this to say, I read this article, I'm like... Yeah, this is making Miley Alana sound fucking cooler than ever. I feel like I got to go listen and, yeah. and, it, and, you know, garnered a whole, a whole uh, episode inspiration here. Before we go any further, how do you think Parker would describe you? <laughs> My music or me? I don't know. I just, <laughs> I would love to see, like, read my life story so far. 
and then write an introduction like that about me and and see what it comes out to be. We should actually, we should maybe get inspired by this to keep adapting our introductions for this podcast, you know? Mm, um, maybe we park it, it up a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's a good yeah, challenge. That's a good we'll, challenge. We'll think about that. We'll think about that for next time. That could be our exercise for next time. Like, <laughs> you know, maybe a little, little writing about how do you write about yourself in as, in a sort of bombastic and engaging and visually engaging, right? He's drawing yeah. a lot of, a lot of visual sensory things. Yeah. Uh, sensory emotions in, into there. And I feel like, uh, I feel like, I feel like that's like, it's almost like mythology, right? That's almost like a, like a Greek mythology story that was set up right there. Totally. Uh, right. Mythological characters, but they're walking among us now. It's pretty cool. So anyways, so what I was really moved by in this piece too, is that this is a piece of, I think this fits his criticism, right? He's talking really the only things he's drawing upon that might be, um, uh, might be demerits, according to that Merriam-Webster definition, would be some of the things they've received cultural criticism for. He's not digging into pieces of their songs that he doesn't really like or anything like that. He talks a lot about lyrics. Now, so this fits with one of my critiques of music criticism, which is that most of the time it's focused on the lyrics of artists. Then they create, I think, good what what I would consider to be good critiques of musicians and and in writing here are finding these really awesome uh, visual passages to talk about the music, to give you an idea, again, to get you curious, which worked on me. But then more meaningful analysis only takes place in the, in the form of words. Here are these words. Here's what we can say about these words, what that might mean for us culturally. And all this made me think about one of the other inspirations for this podcast, which I want to call out and say here, which is Dissect. Dissect is this really fantastic podcast um, by Cole Kushner. I listened to the first season um, on To Pimp a Butterfly. And this is a thing that Cole was like producing out of his garage late at night while he was working a day job. I sort of, <laughs> it's, it's a fun story. And I also look at a story like that. And I'm like, man, what a stressful time to do that. He said like he would put his daughter to bed and then go like work for four hours in the middle of the night. I'd be like, that's cool. Is it cool? I'm not sure it's cool. It's, it's, it's wild. It's a, it's intense is really what it is. Yeah. But at the end of his whole first season, he says, now that I've deeply analyzed this whole entire album. And again, he does focus. He, he's is one of the only sort of pieces of, uh, criticism I found that does focus on some of the more musical elements, but it is still predominantly focused on lyrics and cultural context. Saying that really the best way probably to experience that, to get to know the musical details of the music is guess what? Listen, (laughs) probably don't, you know, you're not going to get it by reading about it. That's okay. But at the end of his season, he says, now that I've analyzed this deeply, I suppose it would be fair to offer some of my critiques of the album. So here's what I have. And then he plays a recording of crickets (laughs) and he says that's really all i got because quote here are my thoughts on criticism sometimes art doesn't need it and frankly i don't have time to criticize we already give too little of our time to art as it is i'd rather not waste that time on critiquing if it's something created with honesty let's meet it with respect and openness let's let it say what it has to say without judgment if it resonates, beautiful. If not, let's respectfully move on. End quote. That's powerful. It is powerful. 
There are things in there that the philosopher in me does want to define, like what counts as something created with honesty. Is that subject to the for me? It's like, does this feel honest to me? Therefore, Mm. it is for me. Or is there a more objective? The one thing I think about there is like, in fact, one of the things that Lana Del Rey was criticized for after putting out video games um, on, you know, it came out on YouTube. She'd already been working as a musician for a while. She was working with a record label. But some people thought, hey, is this just some kind of like persona created by like a team of dudes at a record label? They just like found a pretty face to sort of like put on this. And it, it is kind of like a ridiculous theory for people to, to postulate about. But they... To, to like postulate that at all, it, it, it seems like they were saying this isn't honest. This isn't mm. like an authentic expression of somebody's heart. It's something manufactured just to get us to spend money on it. I think that might be what yeah. people are trying to watch out for. Which, but I wonder if can we even decide where that line is? That That's a super fair question because I think in the past we've talked about collaboration um, probably Simon and Garfunkel and, and, you know, we definitely value like, at least in America, in the West, the self-made man or woman who's, who's the sole genius, but really, you know, we all stand on the, on the backs of those who came before us and those who've influenced us and those who help us, um, along the way. So, so the, yeah, there's a, there's kind of a weird line about what is what is produced by one person and what's a collaboration and is that bad if you have a whole team of people putting out a great movie is that terrible or if there's just one director doing it is that better so i that that's kind of what i thought of when you when you brought up that point about if it's produced honestly so yeah that that's an important thing to define or does that even need to be said someone puts out some art and if you like it great and if not move on maybe you just omit that Honestly, that's what I think is especially powerful about what Cole says here is that he's like, why spend time talking a lot about all the things you don't like about something? Why not just stay focused on the things you do like? Just like move away from it. That that's one of the central questions I have for us today is like, why critique? Hmm. Is there a good reason? There might be a couple good reasons, but but why do it? From there, I think we should listen to a little bit of video games, and then we're going to talk about video games uh, musically. Then we'll listen to Flowers. We'll talk a little bit of Flowers musically. And uh, today, I should warn you all listeners, this show up until this point, I think, actually has been much heavier on musical focus than philosophical focus. Again, we're aspiring philosophers. We're not uh, super well-read. We don't have degrees. And there are people who major in this stuff who really know their shit. Um, so, but today we may enter the realm of the philosophical a little more deeply than usual, which means we will shorten and reduce the musical analysis just a little bit. So let's dig into some video games. Open up a beer and you say get over here and play a video game. I'm in his favorite sundress. What do you think of this song, Video Games? Had you heard this before? Uh, preparing for this podcast i feel like i had in some sort of context can't remember when um for me i don't really enjoy listening to it why is that do you think what's what's losing you about it maybe the pace uh yeah the speed the speed could could be the like the 
intonation on the lyrics. Um, like the tone of the singer's voice, the tone of sound, voice. Like it sounds sad, even though, like, I like the lyric, but like, uh, you know, a uh, place on earth, or heaven is a place on earth with you. Like, that's such a beautiful lyric, but when she sings it, it, it sounds sad. And it's like, well, why would you be sad about that? That sounds amazing. Like, I've heard other songs that are really happy, like, you know, I'm, I'm in love, and, and it's like, wow, man, is this heaven on earth? This is great. And you should be happy about it. But, and maybe she is, but just the, the music speaks to me like that's sad and I don't uh, enjoy listening to it. Right on. This, I believe, is what James Parker, probably what inspired him to say, romanticism disguised as nihilism. Or what was the line? Something like that, yeah. Romanticism that smelled like nihilism. <laughs> that's what it is. I love the idea of smelling like nihilism. Yeah. Because, yes, we have this romantic idea here, this um, heaven is a place on earth with you. But again, like you said, there's something, the tone of Lana's voice is what I would describe as a singing teacher. It's very dark. There's a lot of, a lot of, um, I talk about yawn space to my students, meaning as you yawn, you have this darker place in your voice. Heaven is a place on earth with you. As opposed to, heaven is a place on earth with you. Tell me all the things you want to do. I can make it brighter like that, right? I can actually smile as I sing, and it sounds a little more joyful to our brain. It's you, it's you, it's all for you. As opposed to, it's you, it's you, it's all for you. Everything I do, I tell you all the time. Yeah. So we're kind of picking up on the difference in singing there. What I will say is that I love singing along with Lana Del Rey. I find it very, very easy and sort of gratifying to sing the way she sings, which is very very squishy and smooth and soft and and round and warm you know that's sort of the way i like to sing anyways lana lists tons and tons of people as influences in in one interview she's quoted as saying well yeah just the the masters of every genre are the people who influence me i'm like okay so everybody but one uh, she lists uh, a lot is frank sinatra too which i'm like oh i i feel like i get it i saw you know? that i saw that yeah, i was yeah. hoping that you'd address that yeah, I don't, I don't know a ton about, you know, what she's listened to, but, but I feel like I hear that in the way that she colors the tone of her voice, right? Now, Sinatra, I would, I would argue, probably goes brighter, goes into brighter territory more of the time. And, of course, you will have a chance to hear me Sinatrify this later on. So keep <laughs> listening. Let's talk. Let's, um, let's get away from lyrics for a moment because we're going to get back to lyrics. Let's talk melody. Let's talk chords. And let's also talk about the first time I heard this song, which was actually my roommate, my college roommate, um, coming into the house and playing it for me because he had just heard it. It was released in 2012 on YouTube. And my roommate was always the type. He was always hip to like the newest thing, um, which is not a skill I've ever and it's weird. I do consider it a skill. Some people think like, well, what are you living on a rock? How do you not know? And it's like, I literally don't know exactly <laughs> why I don't pick up on the newest things. I'm just like sort of involved. I'm reading thousand year old um, pieces of Chinese literature. You know, it's like, I don't know what it is, but I wasn't <laughs> hip to this until my roommate showed it to me, which was so cool. And so I heard him play these chords. <laughs> 
What do you think of just that, Gus? What does that, what does that do for you or make you think of? Uh, it sounds like a quest. It sounds like a quest. I love that. I love that. Yeah. What's cool here is that we are, you could argue about what key we're in. You could, you could say, are we in F sharp minor or are we in A major? And one reason is that the, the song has sections that are in both of those different keys. And in the, the very first two chords of the song are F sharp minor, A major. It goes back and forth between them very quickly. And so right away, it's, it's got this ambiguity to it, I think. It's perhaps got this questing nature of almost like, who am I? Am I minor or am I major? <laughs> Where am I going to end up? Where am I going to be? And it doesn't answer the question at the end of the phrase because it goes to these other chords. So I'm going to analyze it as though it were an A major the whole time, even though it definitely ends back in the minor at the end of the, um, but I just find it easier to analyze an A major. So that's what I'm going to do. So here's our A, and it's a number one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one. So that would make these first chords, based on scale degree, the six, one, six, one, three, four, six, one, six, one, three, four. So those chords, the three is C sharp minor, and the four is D major, if you're curious. And so what I love about this is, in Frank Sinatra's music, let's say, we're going to have more dominant tonic relationships. We're going to have chords like this that have this tension of like five, seven, two, four, and the four really wants to go down to three, and the seven really wants to go up to one. That's a very directive harmony. It's like, here's a tension and it's leading to a resolution. The harmony here is less directive. Again, it's just moving from minor to major, minor to major, and then another minor chord to another major chord. So it's always following that pattern, minor, major, minor, major, minor, major, but it's never getting to a zone where it feels like, well, where does, where should it go next? Should it, you know, as opposed to something like this, I could go... that three yeah. chord in there da, da. it's like okay i'm definitely in a minor key right but we are really i would imagine that lana is deliberately avoiding some kind of tonic that way we get a stronger tonic a stronger home once we get to the chorus later that's all that the verse uses for harmony we'll talk about the melody in a second and then later when it gets to the chorus it starts with this chord this is a one chord, but it's got a five in the bass. So it's got this one, three, five, making up the one chord, but this five in the bass. So it kind of sounds a little tense, actually. This is the first sort of direction. It's like, it's you, it's you, it's all for you. Then it resolves to the five chord. Every little thing I do, I tell you all the time. Now it goes to the four chord. Heaven is a place on earth with you now there we get a one chord with one in the bass and i love that it happens there what's funny it's funny to me that you said that heaven is a place on earth with you it's so joyous but it doesn't sound as joyful the way she's singing it 
But I would argue that if you get hip to the harmony and like focus on that even more than the voice here, it it's like the first place in the song where we have a really deliberate, the thing I talked about with Frank Sinatra, the seven to one, heaven is a place on earth with you. Right on that U, that's where we finally get like the resolution to a major tonic. Tell me all the things you want to do. Immediately though, we kind of, we, we get ambiguous again. We go back to minor land. I heard that you like the bad girl's honey. Is that true? It's better than I ever even knew. So again, we go to this four chord, which is a little more ambiguous for the question. I heard that you like the bad girls, honey. Is that true? On this ambiguous. Is that true? It's better than I ever even knew. Better than I even ever knew goes back to that resolved one chord. They say that the world was built for two. Now that one gets a little a little sour, a little mysterious again, because we're back in minor land. Only worth living if somebody is loving you. This chord is cool. This chord is out of the out of the key that we've been in, really, um, securely this whole time. It's using what we call a flat six. And this flat six, it's kind of like taking the major chord. D, A, four, one, four, three, six. And then taking that six and making it flat, making it a minor, but then it moves up to that in the bass. Baby, now you do. And that's where she really, in the melody, baby, now you do, two, one, three, one, one, six. That's where you could argue that, like, there's more resolutions on the minor than on the major, meaning that it really is in the key of F sharp minor, F sharp minor, F minor, as we, as I like to say now, as of now, (laughs) F sharp minor. That's what I get for talking too fast. But so that's a, that's a brief I don't, I don't want to go much further than that, really, except to maybe just briefly talk about the melody, right? The melody is just following these chords. Um, Swinging in the backyard, pull up in your fast car, whistling my name. That's one, three, one, three, five, six. So she's uh, by itself. Swinging in the backyard, pulling in your fast car, whistling my name. What if I had left all of this in a major or a minor key instead of going back and forth? Here's a minor key. Swinging in the backyard, pull up in your fast car, whistling my name. What if it was only major? Swinging in the backyard, pulling up in your fast car, whistling my name. You can get this totally different feel by like leaving it in one place, but of course that's not what she does. She wants the chords to like be moving so quickly with the melody that she's singing at the same time. So it it creates this very even though it's not directive in the term that in the way that this tense harmony is directive, I I find it sort of directive in the way that it's like that the bass is moving so much with the melody instead of like hanging out on a chord which you'll see with the sinatrification of this later one of the first things i do is like the chords can't change that fast the chords aren't going to be able to change that fast for sinatra to like sing over it because he needs to linger 
right? Mm. So they're gonna, we're going to need a little more time there. And I think the fact that the chords change fast, that they're ambiguous between minor and major, it's part of what creates some of these really, really like visually emotive things that James Parker was trying to give words to. This dark blue Americana. I love that term. Dark blue Americana. This music, I feel like, yeah, dark blue is as good a, good a name for any. And that those uh, tambourine-like flickerings of electricity on the horizon. The next sentence in the article, her sonic environment is submarine, slow mm-hmm. blossoming, lavish with dream imagery and orchestral overkill. Right? Um, about the arrangement of this song, there's strings in the background. It, they're probably synthesized strings, but nevertheless, that's like giving you this sort of warm, swoopy feeling as well. And so it's all it's all nostalgic, right? I want to read you one quote that um I went looking for information about for Lana Del Rey because I was just like really curious. First of all, like Elizabeth Grant, real name, but now Lana Del Rey. There, there's a lot of talk back and forth about like is Lana Del Rey a carefully crafted persona? someone who's like distinctly different from Elizabeth Grant or did Elizabeth Grant just like become Lana Del Rey? What happens when you, what happens when you like go by a stage name? What happens when you change your name? Who, who are you really? And this, this relates to one of the subjects of the show of authenticity, right? If I'm born a certain name and I grow up in a really, she grew up in a small town of like two to 3000 people. Um, she was in, she was in like kind of a rehab boarding school when she was 15 or 16 for, uh, for drinking a lot of alcohol as a teenager, but she got, got straight after that. That's like a totally different life from me. And then like when you live that life and then you write like this and take on this name, what, what, what is authentic? What becomes, what does she have to prove to be authentic as Lana Del Rey, right? Or can it be, I think for me, the answer is like, it's as simple as choose your name. Be the name. I don't, you know, I don't, and, and be whoever you want to be in private. If, if it's something different to me, it feels so useful. I know that if I was a celebrity, if I was a person who had like that much attention, the anxiety in my mind that I I experience anxiety on a daily basis, sort of like self doubt about stuff that I do. If I was experiencing that on the scale of like millions of people offering me critiques, there's no way I could handle that. No way. I'd be like, I'd be totally crushed under the weight of that, you know, but one way you might be able to deal with it is to say like, no, 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 no. That's that's like tonic dominant. That's the tonic dominant persona out in the world. Tony is safe with friends and his family and people he knows. You know. Yeah. No. I think I think that could be a useful tool. Sounds like uh, work, George, and relationship, George. No friendship, George, and relationship, George. You know, he must keep those separate in Seinfeld. Otherwise, friend George will cease to exist or something. Right. That was the Seinfeld joke, but. I think um, <laughs> you, you said something in a previous show when we were saying immature puerile stuff, maybe talking about our old lyrics, that we should celebrate the fact that we are not the same person that we were as young, dumb men, that we yes. have we have grown and evolved. And so I've joked, I've cut my hair, I work at a corporation, and I've joked that my punk rock high school self would be like, you're a sellout, man. And, and it would think that I'm very inauthentic at this stage in my life. Um, and so perhaps, perhaps there are folks who, who, Lana, you're a small town girl and now you're too good for us. Or I, I don't know if that's, I'm imagining that, right? I wonder, yeah. But, but um, like, well, she's evolved and she's changed. And you're right, you've become this person. This is my stage name. I'm now a superstar. I will become this superstar. Uh, and and I, I think both 
can be authentic. I mean, again, let's put that in quotes. I, I like that. We'll come back to Lana Del Rey later. Let's listen to Flowers and talk about it musically, and then we're going to dig into some philosophical concepts. Remember, I watched this music video at work. Public service announcement. Don't watch the music video at work. <laughs> watch it in private. She's like a fabulous Jedi. <laughs> yeah, actually. I can buy myself flowers. Write my name in sand. That's when I started sweating at work, right there. <laughs> That's where I turned it off. <laughs> Oh, it's just a workout video. Yeah. Yeah, I can love me better than you can. It's awesome. <laughs> it's so for me, it's fun. It's just fun. It's like plain and simple fun, right? She looks like she's having a fucking great time. I'm having fun. Who's not having fun here? Maybe you're not. Yeah. That's okay. It's I'm, okay if you're not having fun. I want to respect that too. But <laughs> no, it's it's funky. It's like empowering. You know, you go through a breakup, and it's like I don't need you. It's like Gloria Gaynor. I will survive. Vibes. Um, Absolutely. It's. I love that you said that because it not only shares like lyrical themes, it shares harmony themes. It, the chord progression is moving in a really similar way. So back to oh man, it's just familiar pop music, and I like it. Shit. But what, one thing I'll say that I really like about that song is the rhythm section. And one thing I didn't address with Alana Del Rey uh, video games is there's no drums in that, is there? It's a good point. And I'm, I'm no prone to drums. Me, yeah. So that yeah. m- that might have been more why it wasn't working for me than, than even the subject and the sadness. It just I need that beat. It's probably one of the reasons that choral music can sometimes be hard to listen to, too. It's like, where's the... We are inherently... You know, okay, the human brain evolved both to re- uh, to perceive pitch and to like hierarchy. Higher, <laughs> we evolved to perceive pitch and like make a hierarchy out of pitch too, so we can tell which pitch is like the most important in a key. Pitch, please. And we evolved to imitate rhythm too. Like it's if I go one, two, three, four, you know where one is going to be. Your body, like it's from a purely mathematical standpoint it's sort of remarkable it's like how can i measure the distance of time between those four beats and then predict the exact distance between that and the next one it's just a thing that your brain knows how to do right now some people are less or more good at that than others practice makes a difference but it's really cool that our brains can do that without you know putting on a stopwatch and so much of miley's music i think especially um in the last five years ten years maybe is all about the, like it's just such great music to move to music to dance she sings about dancing a lot and i'm not a big time dancer myself sometimes i'm uncomfortable dancing actually it's a thing that privately i am trying to trying to take some steps on like in, in the exercises i do some of the things i'm doing are are actually designed to like get my hips a little loose sometimes like my my hips feel stiff and can like, well, we, why can't they move that way can right? we get uh, that on the bonus content, some Tony like <laughs> hip moving warm up. Yeah, yes. I don't see why not. <laughs> All right, I'm writing it down. Because because uh, when I've spent some time like dancing by myself unabashedly, I'm like, you know, this feels good. It feels like if you, again that it's just a workout video. That video, uh, go watch it. And you'll see what I mean. 
So anyways, all that as context, I think I don't even want to spend a lot of time talking about the, uh, the music of Flowers. It's awesome. It's great. You're going to get to hear. I'll tell you that musically, it's very, very easy to Sinatrify. And you'll hear that later because it's got a lot of seven chords. And a seven chord is... Um, we have a root and a third and a fifth and a seventh. And the seventh is one step away from the root an octave above. So I could call this like a one, three, five, seven. And that resolves to this where we have a three, one, seven, five. And then a one, three, five, seven, three, one, seven, five. And that song is full of seven chords, um, which is really, that's my preferred language. I love the language of seven chords, very common in jazz, common in a lot of other styles of music too, very common in Frank Sinatra's pop music of his time. So I dig that. And again, using that same uh, same uh, initial chord progression movement as I will survive. At first I was afraid, I was petrified. Kept thinking I could sit on the by my side. It's literally the same first. Then, then um, I will survive goes to additional chords that Flowers doesn't use. But those, that same chord movement is, is being used there. So let's get a little, let's get a little meta. Lana Del Rey studied in college philosophy, and specifically, she studied metaphysics. And metaphysics is a branch of philosophy. It's actually a branch of philosophy that some people will argue against. They'll be like, why should anybody spend their time on metaphysics? Because metaphysics is often dealing with questions that it openly admits can't be reliably answered. Questions like, what is the nature of existence? What does it mean to be? Um, one description I read was thinking of like, let's think of atoms. Everything is made up of atoms, and a certain collection of atoms makes up this keyboard, this piano that I'm playing. Is that enough to call this thing a keyboard? And if there's another collection of atoms exactly like this keyboard um, in, in shape and size and everything, but it doesn't function quite the same way. Can I call that the same thing? Like what, trying to get at the definitions of what are these things, right? Hey, editing Tony here. A better example of this might be if I disassemble my keyboard, Margaret, and I reassemble the parts as a synthesizer, adding no new parts, taking away none, but making a different sound. Is it the same keyboard? Is it still Margaret? What about if I buy the same brand and model of keyboard? So it's all the same parts out of the factory, but of course they're different parts. Is that the same as my keyboard, even though I've taken Margaret on gigs and composed on her? Google the ship of Theseus if you want to dig further into metaphysics and identity. Also, I'm about to do a really not thorough critique of metaphysics, just kind of making some comparisons that came to me in the moment. It's again, I'm, I'm not schooled in this stuff yet, so you're going to get more detail on this in future episodes. But for now, I think suffice it to say that anything that you want to spend time on that brings you joy and you find interesting and doesn't actively hurt other people, I'm a fan of. So regardless of what I say about metaphysics, if you want to get deeper into it and, and school me on, you know, why why it's very, very important things for us to think about and, and, and learn, maybe Lana has some opinions about that too, you know, let me know. Love what you love. Don't hurt other people. Keep listening. And so meta is a, a derived from a Greek word that means after. It comes from an Aristotle um, 
it comes from like an editor taking some works of Aristotle and calling some of it metaphysics because it came after Aristotle's works of physics in this edition that he put on after physics. Huh. And it's the name has stuck because it does kind of mean like, well, now that we've established what we see as the reality of our world, the reality of this object, the reality of me, like who am I? Now let's talk about like, what does that actually mean? It's the, the after physics. Here's the, here's the physical, but what is the after? What is the, the re- how, do, how do I tell the difference between myself and another person? What's really different about us, right? Um, so you could see how these, I find these lines of questioning rather interesting. I'm probably not even doing that great a job of explaining <laughs> it. In future episodes, we'll, maybe we'll dig into like, here's a metaphysical question. Let's talk about it ourselves. So we'll, we'll get into that stuff. But I also would understand why some people would say like, you know, humans across the planet are starving. Why don't we talk about that instead of the nature of what is, you know, it's like, I, I, I get that. I, mm. <laughs> I think that makes sense too. It's like, if that is, you know, if that's more concerning, it's maybe more concerning to me. And so, well, it's, it becomes, it maybe becomes hard to think like, well, if I'm really trying to help other people, if I'm trying to help us all be collaborative, like how much time should I be devoting to talking about certain things? And this is also where like Lana and Miley both get critiqued for, I think specifically they're, they're dealing with sexuality when they write about sex, when they do sexy things in videos, there are so many people in our society, so many critics who are ready to say, why should people doing this now? Again, what I said earlier about having, being a father and having some perspective to offer on this, it's like, I understand that I don't necessarily want a child of a certain age to see behavior in a video and think like, well, okay, that is the behavior that I should engage in, in order to be as well liked as Miley and Lana. Right. And if you're, if you're gauging it as like, if the only way I can get people to like me is to take off my clothes and dance, then that is what I will do. When of course it's much more complex than that. I think, I think also as a parent, there are easy ways to avoid your child learning and thinking those things one would be to restrict what they watch but even like letting them watch a lot of different things and making sure to connect with them and talk with them about everything they see i think often can lead to a deeper understanding that doesn't result in internalizing some sort of lesson that you don't want them to internalize right in lana del rey and miley cyrus songs um here's something i wrote that the lyrical content is a big deal for both these artists people can get put off by drug references videos where miley is twerking or sucking on a hot dog like it's a penis etc here's a clarifying response from miley i just read this in an interview today from the daily mail they are asking her about her song, We Can't Stop. And uh, thinking about the video, I watched that video today. And they were thinking, <laughs> Miley was saying, uh, the original video we shot got edited already by like all the different record labels in the UK and the US. And she was like, it's, it's too bad that they had to edit out so many things. And then they were saying, well, some people still think the version that made it out is too provocative. What would you say to those who think the We Can't Stop video is too provocative? And Miley says, I'll give you an edit. I just think the world is so lame because you can shoot people in a movie and you can let people like Zimmerman off on trial, but you can't have someone going like this. She simulates oral sex gesture. That is so dumb to me. The world is such a fucked up place. The last thing people need to worry about is my cute little video for We Can't Stop. You know what I mean? There's a really amazing typo in this article where it says she stimulates oral sex gesture. 
instead of simulates, which I just like, <laughs> I, have to, I have to leave that right here. I mean, like, I'm, is that a typo? Maybe it's not a typo. And I found this really clarifying about if, if a person can have a personal philosophy, right? A sort of like guiding lens through which they view things. This, this might be Miley's, right? She's like, guys, there are, there are people who, uh, she's referring to Zimmerman of the Trayvon Martin case and like that we won't get too deep into the weeds there, but you know, there's a, there's a guy who shot another person and then faces basically no consequences for it. And she's like, I'm just like doing sexy things in a video. Like why, why is that on the same level as, or, or, you know, or why are those things not talked about more as much as like, and, and part of the reason too, is like we, it's like what you said about the way James Parker writes about these people. They turn into goddesses they turn into like greek mythology right and it's like well we have to talk about this it must mean something right but from another perspective these are just people doing jobs just like doing things that they're good at right they're influencing our culture maybe um i mean they definitely are but is it all that important do you have to pay attention to it do you have to critique it what if what have you been critiqued for where you had a similar reaction like Miley? Like, were you like, really? Like, you guys are critiquing me for this? Or have you ever had a reaction like that? Early in my songwriting life, like 14, 15, 16, I was critiqued for some of my lyrics that were, um, I forget exactly what the critique was, but sometimes it was a little sexual. And oftentimes what I came to understand in retrospect is that what I was writing about was sort of demeaning. I was like, I, I would write about women in a certain way where like the women's thoughts and feelings did not enter into the perspective of the song. Not only did they not enter into it, I would sort of like actively in lyric form dismiss their feelings, you know? Mm, and, okay. um, and that's what some of my female friends objected to. And I feel fortunate for whatever reason that I listened to them and was like, you are right, actually. Like I don't, if that's the way you feel, um, that's, then that's bad. I'm not going to do it. Right. I'm going to change. I'm going to change the way I talk about it. I learned to write about sexuality and romance in a way that felt more universal, you know? So, so we can learn from criticism then. Yeah. I learned from that critique. I would say, right. I'm not sure I've ever been critiqued in a way where I thought like that's un- unwarranted. But here's where I think it can diverge, right? It's about the intent of the person offering the feedback, yeah. right? Or the perceived intent. Um, and, and this kind of comes from, from some training concepts. Uh, but, but safety is created by the perceived intent of the other, you know, the other person. And like your willingness to sort of listen to that message has to do with that safety a little bit. But, but if, if those people coming to you had your best interest at heart and wanted to help you understand another perspective, right? Whereas maybe some of these critics out there want Miley to understand some sort of uh, more conservative perspective of that, you know, you're influencing our young kids in a bad way and they're acting out and please don't do that. But, but more what I see in that sort of, you know, pop star criticizing and whatever is people, people just trying to get clicks or, you know, it's like a, it's a sexy topic. It's, it's a hot topic and let's throw some shade and there's a business model in that. Um, and, and so what's the intent? Were they really trying to help Miley or are they just being trolls? Right. Um, and I don't know the answer to that, 
but I, but I think therein is the sort of value and criticism. Are you really helping someone? What is your intent to help them? Or are you just trying to put down or get attention yourself or what, you know, whatever subtext there might be there? Absolutely. Well said. And I think that's what the, again, I'm hoping that the implied for me, um, you know, it's funny. I always talk about, I have massive ambitions for this, but to be sober and to think about it for myself and for you, it does really, really help me to think, to think openly about what Miley and Lana sing about and what they do in videos as like their preferences for how they'd like to express themselves. Right. And if I ever do object to th- there is a line in the Lana Del Rey song, um, only worth living if you've got somebody saying, I'm like, well, I don't really agree with that in my own life, but I also don't think that like everything in a song needs to be true. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. so I can, I can, I can hold those contradictions in my head at the same time. It's like, yeah. I enjoy the song. I'm not using it as like a mantra to live my life. And, and I still enjoy it. Right. And with that said, I think I should Sinatrify some things for you. Um, I have to go to soccer in like a few minutes. Do you, do you think you have time to Sinatrify and then wrap up? I think I do. Yeah. Should I go? It's going to be short. We should do it right now. Okay. Yeah, baby. This is going to be good for us being short. I am short. I can buy myself flowers Write my name in the sand Talk to myself for hours say things you don't understand I can take myself dancing and I can hold my own hand yes I can love me Fuck yeah. That was so good. I liked do, doing this because I felt like this is a happy song. Generally, it's like, fuck you. I don't need you. But I felt like with Frank, if you do that slow tempo and you sing it gently, it's like, can I buy myself flowers? I feel like, and I feel like that's more Frank's style is sort of like embodying the sorrow. In this yeah. Song. Yeah. That sounded more <laughs> like you're trying to give yourself positive self-talk, but you don't even believe yourself. Uh, I love that. Bonus content will include a synotrification of video games as well. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash philosophically sound. You can email us your own critiques, and we are open to critique as a philosophical project at philosophically sound podcast at gmail.com. My brother, I think being on a timeline is pretty good for us, honestly. We'll continue to explore topics as we move through the year, and I love you so much. This is Philosophically Sound, where we 
examine <laughs> this is philosophically sound where we explore the music people like and we learn to love people and music and all sorts of shit and we learn how to say sentences correctly yes hey tony one more thing what are we we're fucking, we're fucking professionals, professionals. <laughs> love you man love you brother <laughs>